Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and welcome to the show. My guest this week is actor, writer, and director Ben Lewis, whom you may remember as Bobby Breckenridge on Degrassi, The Next Generation, or as Other Scott in Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Ben's other recent credits include gigs on Long Story Short and Chasing Life, and behind the camera, he co-wrote, directed, and produced Zero Recognition, in which he stars with friend of the show, Lauren Collins. That was released on Vimeo late last year, and it's a lot of fun. You should definitely check it out. Ben picked Tootsie, Sidney Pollock's 1982 farce starring Dustin Hoffman as Michael Dorsey, a self-destructively principled New York actor who indignantly disguises himself as an unknown actress, Dorothy Michaels, to make a point about sexism in the television industry, and winds up landing a soap opera gig that makes Dorothy an unlikely celebrity and gives Michael new insight into the portrayal of women in the entertainment media. It also introduces him to Jessica Lange's Julie, an actress who could be the love of his life if he can get her to see the man inside the woman. 35 years later, the gender politics are admittedly more than a little dicey, but we'll get to that. This is someone else's movie. You know, I was the kind of kid who, on a Friday night, I would finish school... And my parents would pick me up and we'd go to video flicks and I would go and I would get like a stack of videos for the weekend and, or for, you know, or for the summer, you know, it would be, and they, they would do like a seven movies for seven days for $10 sort of thing. And that was like, that was the shit. So I would, (laughs) I, I think, um, you know, through the course of my pre sort of, um, my preteen, you know, my adolescence, I think I went through pretty much every comedy dramedy that was made in the 80s and 90s probably right. probably and um and so i'm sure i saw it somewhere in during that time but i think it it didn't really sort of i don't think it really resonated with me that much when i was when i was a kid i remember like i remember liking it um but it's a movie that i've only sort of like i, I think i sort of rediscovered in the last couple years and now i watch it every couple of months and every time I find out someone that I know hasn't seen it you know I'll sit right. down with them and I'll force them and that's why I'll, I'll always buy DVDs too because to me there's no way to physically force somebody to watch a movie other than shoving it yeah. in their hands you know yeah, yeah I, I totally get that yeah. the the sense of uh, both obligation and gift right yeah right 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 you haven't you wait, wait like, short of sitting the person down right then and doing it and mm-hmm. that's two hours you don't always have yeah, uh, you get to you get to say, "Did you watch it yet? Did you watch it yet?" I yeah. know you have it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I'll download it on iTunes. Oh, Netflix was spotty. Uh, I couldn't quite get to it. Google Play. Yeah, just right, right, stop right. making excuses. Right, right. And I won't take it back <laughs> until I know that you've watched it. That's right. Yeah, you must answer me these three questions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there will be a quiz. Um, so you've obviously gone through every iteration, like DVDs and yeah. So it's funny actually because between. Um, I had the Criterion edition in L.A., mm. and I had the standard DVD home in Toronto. Right. So, you know, I, I know we, we talked about doing this, I guess, probably like a couple weeks ago. We started talking about it, and and when I was here briefly doing, um, doing the sort of final week of post on my short, I was watching the, um, the standard version, <sighs> and then I went back and... 
um, watched the Criterion version in LA <laughs> and then I was sort of going over it with, I brought the Criterion back with me and I was reviewing it last night and watching all the special features and stuff but um, but yeah so anyway it was a movie that I I, I guess I rediscovered it um, a couple years ago the, the the feature that Lauren and I have have now done a first draft on is a sort of um, is another is a, is a sort of I don't know that you wouldn't call it mistaken identity comedy, but it's but uh, sort of based on the sort of Cyrano type okay. tropes, you know. Sure. Um, so I was thinking about. I feel like it was around that time when we were sort of developing um, the idea for the script that I was like, "What a really great comedy, sort of of that, of that in that style." Right. Yeah. Um, and so. And so Tootsie was one of them. I think that's when I revisited it, but it may also have been when that great um, Dustin Hoffman AFI clip went viral. Do you know the one I'm talking Is about? The one where where he's talking the one about, about the ownership of the script, or no? It's the one where he's talking about um, he's talking about doing Tootsie, and he was talking about how when he was going through the hair and makeup tests for the movie, and they did the initial hair and makeup tests, and he what they came up with, he, he looked at himself and he was like, Oh, I'm not very attractive. And he said to the, and he said to them, he was like, do you think we can make me more attractive? And they said that this is probably the best that (laughs) this is the best we're going to, we're going to do. And, uh, and he went home to his wife and he said that he started crying because he realized that he realized that if he saw him as a woman on the street, he would, or, you know, at a party or whatever, he would never give that woman the time of day. And he would have missed out on knowing potentially a, an extraordinary person because he had been sort of brainwashed to you know by by sort of um um typical like male male beauty the standards sure, for, yeah. for standards of female beauty and um and this is in the early 80s too where everything is sort of insanely overdone yeah in terms of what female beauty was at the time totally you know it's there's even like terry gar even shows up in the olivia newton john physical outfit at one point oh so, yeah or something similar to it it's just like yeah oh, but with right. jeans it's yeah. kind of a cool yeah. <laughs> oh oh i know what you're talking about oh i know what you're talking about yeah. but she wears a couple of uh she has some great outfits in this movie the, i was noticing yeah, yeah yeah and you just think oh that's right that's what everyone had to do right uh at the time to to look like halfway fit to look like they were trying everybody had to make an effort and totally. Hoffman who's never been I don't think traditionally handsome no. that's the whole reason that like Nichols cast him in the graduate because he didn't look like the person they wanted mm-hmm. uh, and then this yeah Dorothy Michaels is funny looking yeah she's not ugly she's just distinctive totally and I also love that I love that the thing in that story is basically that Dustin Hoffman uh, is just like it's not narcissistic it's an actor thing right you uh-huh. need to know what you look like at all times you need to feel like you're representing properly mm-hmm. and the idea that he wouldn't like himself right is the, the most terrifying thing for for an actor for a performer right, right. Like, I, I wouldn't want to watch me but I think it's also interesting because you know he he sort of talked about when you know when he was a kid he was a very a deeply unattractive kid you know he that he had acne and that he had a big nose well that nose has always been yeah right it's like your ears right they never get it right more. exactly but he had but that he was you know always the shortest kid in his class and I think he's it, and you know he said that he sort of realized um through the process of this this movie i mean how you know he knew how painful that experience was for him but how had he been born a woman with those sort of similar features or whatever his life would have been 50 times worse you know that he was able to um grow out of that 
that awkward awkward phase, but not not entirely. I mean, he's still a and 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 be. Uh, you know, a successful character actor. Yeah, he sort of made it work for him. Like the certainly yeah. the height thing. I mean, I mean, and it worked for him obviously in the case of the Graduate too, because, um, you know, I know that he he said that Mike Nichols, you know, when he cast him, he thought, oh, this is a terrible. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman thought this is a terrible piece of miscasting because yeah. I'm not the leading man. I'm 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 a character actor, and then it was interesting. I he also said that when he chose to do Midnight Cowboy as his follow-up film mm-hmm. to uh, to The Graduate, yeah. that Mike Nichols called him up and he was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, I made you into a movie star and now you want to go back. Yeah. Now you want to go back to being not just a character actor, but to being... Yeah. And that performance, I mean, is... is shabby, cleric, miserable. But yeah. that's what he said that he felt like when he was growing up. Like, he felt... He felt inside that he looked like Ratso Rizzo, that he was Ratso Rizzo. Yeah. So that actually felt closer to him. He understood that more than he did pay, playing whatever his idea of Benjamin Braddock was. Yeah. But that's why he's so perfect in The Graduate, because he does look like someone who doesn't feel like he should be there. Like that's right, and that this woman would be yeah, and that this yeah. woman would be making advances towards him or yeah. whatever. Both yeah. women, yeah, yeah, both yeah. women, yeah. yeah, yeah. So with Tootsie. Amazingly, I, this is something that occurred to me just yesterday. Is like for the first time. Oh yeah, of course you'd have to be short because a tall guy couldn't pull it off. A tall actor could not pull off totally. that character. At least, I mean, there'd be a different version of it. Mm-hmm. And we have Gina Davis for scale. The first time we see her, she towered yeah. over him. Yeah. Uh, and of and course, she got hired. She got hired like for out of a modeling book because yeah. Sidney Pollock was like, I need an actress who's a certain height so that her breasts will hit Dustin Hoffman square in the eye. Yeah. And. Yeah, she's never done a movie before. That weird kind of cynicism and sexism, but working for it. But like, it's it's not a bad choice. No, it's a really smart choice for comedy. But again, that like with everything, and we didn't even get to start to unpack the sexual politics of it, which, mm-hmm. is, which was just amazing to me watching it. Now it's probably the first time I'd say in ten years that I'd seen it, mm-hmm. um, rather than just a clip of it here or there. And it's it's a tightrope now and totally 1982. I don't like I was. 13 or 14 I have no idea how I processed it then uh, other than this is funny yeah uh, but now it just feels even more daring somehow like totally it. and I, I I think that that's probably why even though I, when I watched it when I was a kid I don't think any of that I don't think I realized how smart it was mm-hmm. and it's actually very subtle um, in its even though there are obviously like farcical elements of it it's it's a relatively subtle take given a, a, on a on a ridiculous sort of outlandish premise. Sure. And the performances are so sort of subtle and grounded. And I think when I was a kid, I responded more to, um, to sort of a broader, um, take in a a comedic take on similar subject matter. Because when I was a kid and it's still one of my top five, but, (laughs) but nine to five was like one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. And that seems almost like cartoonish next to this. Yeah. Well, it has literal cartoons for one thing. Yeah. Literal. That's 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 true. It creates for itself. That's true. Um, And Dabney Coleman is the avatar of sexism in both of them. He it's, he is the epitome of 80s sleaze. Yeah. He's so good at it. And you know, what's interesting, what's interesting too. I don't know if you came across this in the, the special features, but that he was originally Sidney Pollack cast him as the agent agent, originally until Dustin Hoffman because of the combative nature of their 
relationship naturally he was like you have to play the agent you have to do it yeah um and i love the idea as well that at that point in the process of developing the film that, he, that hoffman was pretty much full-on michael dorsey uh, oh yeah refusing to accept logical explanations for things that had to be emotional they had to be rooted in character right even when it was simply i want you to direct me as an actor while you are directing my career as you my agent that right. and he couldn't see like, the, the tunnel vision involved in making a movie like this in making any movie obviously mm-hmm. you can't see anything but what you're working on mm-hmm. uh, is something I've always admired and, and been terrified of in the same measure because I mean I write I focus but I can stop and start I don't like I'm not going to lose the thread of my argument if mm. I'm interrupted by the phone mid paragraph but for an actor to literally lose him or herself in a performance the way that Hoffman apparently has to mm-hmm. um, to make a comedy out of that is like either an incredible act of grace on his part and graciousness to, mm-hmm. to allow himself to be sent up because basically mm-hmm. supposedly Michael Dorsey mm-hmm. is Dustin Hoffman he right. is just you know he's kind of humorless kind of uh, even that opening scene intense. at the party where he's trying to pick up every single yeah. woman he meets uh, I, and it's, it's creepy he's kind of self-righteous a little bit yeah. too in the way that he's sort of I mean he has to be because he's also an acting teacher and he's sort of you know his his role with the Sandy character is to basically be her mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, her, and I think she says that when she's giving her little toast or speech when he walks in at his party. But you know, um, he's sort of her her professional and personal sort of mentor and guru or whatever. And and one of my favorite things is how he sort how he is sort of um, sort of a bit self righteous and a bit superior with her and, and coaching her on the audition and stuff. And then when he takes her, um, to the audition and finds out that, um, the, the Terry Bishop, the right, lead yeah. on the soap has gotten the part that he wanted in Iceman Cometh on right. Broadway or whatever. And then he immediately turns into the sort of, uh, needy, insecure oh, actor. Yeah. 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 Oh, completely, completely abandons her, abandons but her. then, yeah. you know, breaks down Sidney Pollock's door and becomes, becomes that sort of, that thing that I think all actors hate to, um, be or hate to admit that we are, which is, you know, <laughs> you know, we can, we can act self-righteous and we can, you know, get on our high horse about, you know, you, as he does sort of about creating your own work. And, and certainly that's very there, that's very true and valid. But at the end of the day, you know, we find out that another actor yeah. got a part that we wanted and we, t- we, we sort of revert to this. It's almost this like feral sort of, <laughs> you know, state of being, yeah. um, sort of childlike and, uh, yeah, I wanted that. That was mine. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. Which is... Uh, so, t- to me, sort of the reason that I I think that I that I picked it for this and, and the reason that it, it has sort of, I think, more and more relevance to me as I, as I get older and I get further along in my career or whatever, is that, to me, it's the best movie ever made about sort of... First of all, the indignity of being an actor, which is something that Lauren and I sort of tried to uh, or explore in Zero Recognition as well. But also just like the the passion of being an actor. Like, you know, Dustin Hoffman said in one of the, the interviews on the DVD that, you know, it's about sort of keeping, it's like a candle you have to keep that has to stay lit. You know what I mean? The, the desire, the love of your craft because you're going to be met with constant rejection so if you don't have that burning inside of you you know you'll you'll fall by the wayside and i feel that like when i watch this movie you know what i mean like i feel that it it, that that it's a movie 
based around a performance that's really about the love of performing. I feel that sort of viscerally when I watch the movie. Yeah. Um, and that's certainly something that I didn't feel or pick up on when I was a kid. But the more that I watch it, uh, you know, as, as an adult and in my career and stuff, the more it sort of is moving to me, actually. Yeah. It also has um, so much going on about uh, both both in terms of actors and the people playing the actors. So much about representation and the way that they and the way that people see themselves mm-hmm. uh, between you know the, the basic premise that Gelbart always claimed credit for of uh, a man learning to be a better man because he is a woman for a while, right? Uh, and then clearly the device that I'm sure Elaine May brought in, which is the contrasting of the expected dialogue on the teleprompter with what Dorothy Michaels is actually mm. saying when she becomes a feminist hero. Right. But it's because it's coming from a place of Michael's ego, mm-hmm. but it translates into an opportunity to liberate liberate the character, liberate the structure of the mm-hmm. show, and because Pollock is smart enough to play the reactions of the women in the room, mm-hmm we get to actually see what a feminist perspective is like on a show that isn't built for one. Totally. Because everybody is horrified. Yeah. Or excited. Or both. Yeah, you can all, I mean, you can all, you can see, I think on the faces of all the women, you know, uh, all the reaction shots of Jessica Lange and Gina Davis yeah. and... Um, but all the people on set, you know, like, Ellen yeah. Foley's in there as an assistant a few times. She barely speaks. Who, did, who, who which she one was she? On, she was on Night Court uh, for years. Uh, but who is she into? Which oh, one is she into? The, she's the assistant who actually, the, the casting assistant who comes out and said, the first one who says, uh, oh, she's the one who calls out the list of names. Uh, oh, in, oh, in yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, interesting. And her, she apparently, thanks IMDb trivia, mm-hmm. she wasn't able to speak very much because she was recording an album and she blew her voice out. Oh, really? But as a result, she's got this incredibly expressive face. Uh-huh. And you just, every time it cuts back to her, my brain goes, oh, that's Ellen Foley. And, oh, yeah, look at is her she, is she the Is she blonde? Yeah. Oh, blonde okay, so hair. she's, uh, is she the one who's sort of the, um, when, <laughs> when... Dorothy is um, refuses to. So they're doing that scene in the woman's beat up in the hospital yeah. bed, and she changes the lines to say she's supposed to say yeah. you should really go to therapy, and then she changes it because she says, "What woman in the right mind would would you say yeah. that to a woman?" And she says that to the producer in the sort of booth, and then she turns to. I love that. I just noticed that the the, the producer turns to. I don't know if she's an associate producer, she's in, you know, something on the show, and the the producer just sort of goes, like, nods, like, see? Like, yeah. I told, we had that conversation in the room, you know, we talked to the writers about that, and a woman would never do that, but somehow it got, you know, it, 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 it yeah. you know, yeah. got overlooked. Um, I, I, there are moments like that that run throughout the movie, and they are not, like, they're not just confined to the set. There's yeah. all the stuff between Dorothy and Julie, mm-hmm. uh, that dinner that goes on and on and on. And I'd, f- I'd forgotten just how fast the thing moves. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got the gig within 15 minutes, I think, of, of yeah. the film, and it just rolls right through all of it. Yeah. We're at the hour point before, almost before uh, Dorothy meets uh, uh, Julie's father, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. becomes a comic engine. Mm-hmm. Charles Durning is his own comic engine. Yeah. And well, that... You know, I think that that opening montage that they do uh, in the film is incredibly effective because you get that, you know, you see all these bad auditions that he goes on, you see him. So, you know, that sort of, that sort of, um, that sort of, um, that thing that I was talking about where it, 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 uh, it highlights the indignity of being an actor as, as well as it does the sort of like the passion and the, the need 
to do it. Um, yeah, we get to see him you get that all in the teacher. opening mo- montage. You know what I mean? See him be like sort of so exasperated in these bad auditions, but also so passionate in his classroom. You know, um, and you know, giving these actors these these pep talks about how you need to make your own work, and um, so you get you get you get the full sense of like what his career is and what his struggle is before the the opening credits are even. Yeah. over so i think that you're able to sort of like it, you're right it's like sort of boom boom um they're able to set it up so quickly but you feel like you know this character and you know not only him but you know terry gar's character you have a good sense of bill murray's character yeah. just from that amazing party scene and um before you even get into the world of the of the soap yeah and then the soap opera starts to play out in real life, of course, because this is a farce and the, yeah. mirror, the mirroring element has to kick in. Mm-hmm. But it does so in such a... like It's such a weird, lovely relationship that Hoffman and Lang build mm-hmm. and in, in either character, but in but in as actors. I don't think I've... I, and I, I remarked on this to, to Kate when we were watching it again last night. It's like, I don't think I've ever seen Jessica Lang be this loose and interesting yeah. before or since. Like She's fun in King Kong, mm-hmm. which is the biggest role she had before that, and in Francis, she's she's exactly what that part demands. But there's a humanism, a naturalism, something... She's responding to something in Hoffman or the material, mm-hmm. or just the fact that the takes are longer and that there's room. And then she ends up working with Sam Shepard and they start making movies together and they get less interesting over mm. time. Uh, because they're both very serious screen presences in right. the work they did together, but she's like she's so alive in in, yeah. the, in this role in a way that I don't think I've ever seen her since. And now that she's doing like American Horror Story with all the camp stuff, it's yeah. hard to see that that same performer. Yeah, it's interesting what you said earlier about the sort of heightened glamour of the '80s and sort of expectation of how women were supposed to look, because she actually has this real sort of like loose and like blousy, I guess, sort of like glamour to her, yeah. you know, that is not. Sh- overly made up and it's not exaggerated and her hair's really sort of short and you know yeah. and, not, and we see the real like the whole point of the, of the scenes they have is that mm-hmm. she's not on set so mm-hmm. we see the real version of her so she's got sweatpants on a lot and she's yeah 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 I was thinking like did people have those aren't yoga pants it's nice yeah, right 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 they're, they're proper sweatpants right in dinner scene but uh, yeah and but then all because all those scenes that you see them in together it's just sort of two girlfriends yeah. sort of hanging out so she does sort of you do see the character sort of with her guard down and and uh, in a really engaging accessible sort of way you know. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, she's so she's so great in it and it's so interesting because I assume that it was I mean you said that King Kong was maybe the only It was her first big studio first picture, big pretty studio much movie. almost her last. But she got offered this she got offered Tootsie without she didn't even audition. There was no script when they offered her the role, but but I guess Dustin Hoffman had met her at a party and thought that she was the most naturally sort of and you see it in the movie. She's so she's got such a natural sort of like beguiling quality, and you don't really know what it is, but mm. she does. And uh, and I think Sidney Pollock felt the same way. And they both, you know, they both sort of just describe it in, in interviews on the DVD. They say that she just sort of they were like, oh, we we got to get her. Like we'd be so lucky to have her. And they flew to the set of Francis to talk to her about it and to basically ask her if she'd do it when there was no script there was no script at that point like she needed to sort of just take a leap of faith and and uh 
and want to do. And she said that, I forget who the who the older actress was who told her this, but I think it was an older actress who was in Francis, and I don't remember who it was, but told her, you're going to have to do a comedy after this. <laughs> and Just so because she had said that, and then Tootsie came along, even without a script, it obviously, you know, it was Sidney Pollack and Dustin Hoffman, so she was like, she agreed to do it. Sure, I would say no. Um, yeah. But, but she, but I think that she, she said that she was nervous about it because she's not, she isn't a comedic actress yeah. and she didn't play it like a comedy. She doesn't play it like a comedy at all. You know, she's not, she's not particularly funny in the no, movie. No, yeah. She I mean, just, from her perspective, it's a relationship picture. Yeah. Basically. Totally. Uh, but, and I, I've wondered for a long time since I finally heard the story like years ago of, mm-hmm. of the the evolution of the screenplay uh-huh. just how much of that is um, is do, is down to Elaine May finding roles for both of the female characters yeah. and creating a romantic triangle that is it's like it's almost cruel mm-hmm. the way Gar's character is handled uh-huh. she's constantly being forgotten about and, totally. and left in the and left in, in the lurcher you're complaining about three hours later, you know, like how the the roasts are ruined. Yeah, and all that. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the then she does still have that scene where she says, you know, like I get to feel the way I feel, and you don't get, and you get to know that it's your fault. Yeah, which is so like it's crushing because yeah. it reminds us that for all the the anxiety and the flapping and the silliness that Terry Gar does so well, that there's a so person well. under there with feelings, and and she's at least as valid. Um, her feelings are at least as valid in this situation as anybody else's, and maybe more so because we've spent the entire movie laughing at her. At as well. her, totally. Yeah, that snap in the in the structure is just so smart. It's so, and it's so smart the way that they parallel the way that that obviously Michael is treating her with the way that um, Dabney Coleman's character is treating Jessica Lange. So at the yeah. same, that you know, he'll literally be, uh, you know, Dorothy will be sort of giving a, a pep talk to Julie about, you know, the way that Dabney Coleman is treating her and then she'll suddenly realize that you know, she's he's forgotten yeah. that he was supposed to have dinner with Terry Gar and Terry Gar is, you know, you know, sitting sitting at home with a burnt, you know, roast yeah. or whatever it is. And yeah. um it's so it's so genius the way they do that. And it's 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 also interesting because like you said, you know, Terry Gar gets so horribly mistreated in the movie and yet you never maybe just because it's such a like like it's such a fantastic comedic performance you never feel totally I mean you feel you feel bad for her but you're also sort of she doesn't completely lose her um it seems like she should completely have lost her dignity or or time and time again um but there's still something about her maybe just that she's such a fantastic character yeah she's well I think it just feels that she's real like she feels yeah like she's not a caricature and if she was a caricature yeah. even just the fact that whole the, the the that incredibly tricky I want you scene where mm. she's showering he's about to try on her clothes mm-hmm. she comes out of the shower and clearly this platonic relationship is still platonic except that he's now has to jump her mm-hmm. and it becomes like it's a it's it's like a James Bond level of using a woman. Like right. It's wrong. Right. Every totally. level. And we know it's a mistake. And the characters don't. And I think that... I, I wonder how that played for adults in 1982. Because for mm. me, it was just weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it didn't make a lot of sense when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, I was unaware of the 
the free love casual sex like AIDS hadn't really hit yet right of course everybody's sleeping with everybody uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, which is also why he can be such a player in the opening sequence isn't that totally. that's just how people interacted yeah stay a while come on you know, I want you to I want your coat to be the last one off the bed right 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 which is so creepy uh, it's like finding out the next couple of years you know like you watch Ghostbusters and you realize that Bill Murray's basically a pickup artist in all of his scenes with Sigourney Weaver and they're uh-huh. incredibly uncomfortable now. right he's just like he's not even hitting on her he's pressing himself into her uh, but here there's a point where you can write it off to Michael just doing whatever it takes to get apart mm-hmm. which we've already seen him do mm-hmm. and at the same time it's just she's lonely and of course she likes mm-hmm. him of course she likes mm-hmm. him and mm-hmm. she's the Baxter yeah uh, in this one she's the one who's going to get left for the for the better match at the end and it's really I think it's really amazing how we can actually see it all you can you can see it from every perspective in a farce that's moving at the speed of light mm-hmm. because someone either Pollock is smart enough to pick up on the emotional dynamics of the actors mm-hmm. or May was smart enough to write it all, to write all of those scenes from the woman's point of view mm-hmm. and you well, know, she yeah Elaine May so she created the character of Julie and the character of Sandy and the character of Jeff that Bill Murray plays like none of those characters right. were in the script before Elaine May came along so you know th- this uncredited rewrite that she did is is extremely extensive um but uh but i also love how i love how sandy's final moment in the film is saying sort of don't call me i'll see you at rehearsal oh she says uh, she he, he says what about the play and she's like she's like i think i should tell you to shove your play but i am you know i am an actress and and so you know she gets to sort of storm out and say see you at rehearsal don't call me and then you never see her again for the rest of the movie, but you do see sort of the um, the marquee outside of the theater in Syracuse, and it, she you know she has top billing underneath Michael Dorsey and Sandy Lester or whatever. Yeah. And I sort of love that because she gets this. I mean, you're supposed to. I mean, they tell you it's a great. She says it's a great part, and yeah. he says he thinks it's a great play, which you sort of you know even though Sidney Pollock says it's nobody's ever gonna want to see it. The fact that he's now sort of a marquee name post uh you know soap opera or whatever makes you think like oh she you know she actually gets a a great starring role and people are going to see this play because michael dorsey is now a name and um and so it's such a subtle thing that sort of that marquee that you see um because it's only one shot of it and i think that's the only time you're in syracuse unless the farm is in syracuse Maybe? I don't know. Yeah, no, it's upstate, but I don't know. Right, because I think they show it to you right before he goes to the Charles Durning's bar and sort of meets up with him. But yeah. Um, but anyway, so you do have the sense that at least sort of you. I think you get the sense from just from that sign, or at least I do, that like she's gonna be okay. She's better off than she was at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Even though she had to go through these sort of, um, you know, horrible convolutions, horrible yeah. <laughs> indignities. Yeah. But you but know, that's like that's. That's positively Shakespearean, right? The, mm-hmm. the concept of the farce in which all the pure, all anyone whose intentions are pure is rewarded mm-hmm. rather than punished, mm-hmm. and somehow you have uh, this love triangle where everyone is wrong mm-hmm. and everyone is simultaneously justified, right? Um, to the point where Julie is ultimately open enough to deal with the attraction that she's feeling to a person she thinks is a woman right and an older woman right and I love that I love so, that in it too daring. the fact that she's sort of and it's not for laughs no yeah it's a real crisis for her totally and the fact that they say that they say you know in the scene where he tries to 
um, kiss her as Dorothy and she says you know I, I know what that impulse was obviously I had the same impulse and so there she is addressing the fact that she had those has those feelings and obviously she's confused about them but not in some sort of like grotesque over the top way you know what yeah. I mean the fact that it's another woman and like you said that it's an older woman um, is not played for, for, for cheap laughs at all which I think is so um, especially for that time. Yeah. Well, so, given that everything else was, you know, like the uh, partners, the movie with Ryan O'Neill and John Hurt as uh, a, a, a straight cop and a gay cop who have to pretend to be a couple. I've never seen that. It's terrible. Um, and it's and it's funny that like you know I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. It was only a few years ago when ugh. you think about when, when yeah. you think about that that movie was only a couple years ago. Yeah, and considered a good idea. <laughs> it's it, it mind blowing. Yeah, it's it's incredibly progressive as a movie from 30 years ago and even now that and I was trying to figure out if there was a way because someone surely will try Mm -hmm. uh, now that we've reached the point where trans characters and trans Mm -hmm. performers are are not just accepted but but considered a valuable part of Mm -hmm. anything it's not just you know hey we have RuPaul in this from 10 years ago Mm -hmm. now you have Transparent and you have um, you know Orange is the New Black and you, you have all of this stuff going on where it's a con- it's an actual conversation with the audience, and if you don't like it, you can go watch something else anywhere else. Mm-hmm. But there is the stuff is there, and it's not being shamed, it's not being yelled at, it's mm-hmm. not being shouted down. I don't think it would be possible to remake or or channel the energy of of Tootsie. But mm-hmm. I don't think that it's because it wouldn't work. I, mm-hmm. I think if somebody was really really brave, they could probably pull it off. There was an there was an interesting. Um HBO pilot that Mike White did that I read the script for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that um, that they passed on, but it was about a... Uh, I think it was like a Texas... Yeah, I think it was like a drag queen in Texas or whatever who gets sort of like loses her, her, her boyfriend and gets kicked out of her apartment and, you know, loses her job and um, is, a, is a drag... Like, I think country western singer, like drag performer, and gets a job... Um, working as like a, a nanny for like a conservative sort of like a wealthy conservative uh, okay. southern family or whatever and has to pretend that he's uh, a real woman or whatever to, to get this job as like the family nanny or whatever and uh, and I remember reading it and thinking like oh this could be because it's Mike White and I think yeah. that I, I was like I'm interested in what this could be I mean ultimately it didn't get picked up which is mm-hmm. kind of a shame because I think it could have been interesting yeah and I would trust White to at least make it human instead of oh, farcical totally. and, and we haven't even mentioned you know like the dark side of tootsie which is mrs doubtfire which mm-hmm. is i mean i didn't like it then right uh, right right only seems more because Miss, the argument i made at the time was that people were comparing it to tootsie because of course a man is dressing as a woman but mrs doubtfire is is the tootsie from the universe where everyone is raised on lead where everybody's <laughs> like just just fundamentally unable to see people clearly and mm-hmm. You know that's why Mrs. Doubtfire is beloved by children because um, Robin Williams as a as a as a granny is funny, mm-hmm. but it's got no base. Like there's absolutely no connection to the real world right. or or human emotion in all of it. And the idea of someone disguising himself as a as a as an elderly British woman to mm-hmm. spy on his own children and his own wife like yeah. it just gets uglier and uglier. And it's all the things that Tootsie doesn't even think about. Yeah. Well, it's fu- that, that, that's funny because I feel like as a kid, obviously I love Mrs. Doubtfire. Right. And I'm not asking you to No, 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 no. And I haven't seen me. but no, but I haven't seen it since I was a kid. And um 
And whereas something like Tootsie wouldn't really didn't really register for me, I think it's because it didn't hit me over the head sure. or it's not overtly wasn't broad and overtly jokey in the way that, you know, a Mrs. Doubtfire is. Um but I think that's because, you know, I think the origin of Tootsie comes from a very serious and like you said, you know, Dustin Hoffman basically is Michael Dorsey or that was Michael Dorsey was Dustin Hoffman in yeah. the first fifteen years of his career when he couldn't get a job. And um, you know, it, 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 the origin of it came from a real, um, thoughtful, introspective place, which was him and his writer friends, who originally was him and his writer friend, I think Murray Schleichel or Schiegel or something. Oh yeah. The guy that he keeps crediting. Yeah. Idea. So they're walking down the street and they are having a conversation about how every ma- man has a woman who lives inside of him and, and they referred to that woman as Shirley. So everybody has a Shirley inside of them. Okay. And and so the, the question that they wanted to explore with the movie was not, you know, not, not what would it be like if you had been born a woman necessarily, but if, if you... I'm getting this wrong now. <laughs> well, if you were, if I'm remembering it, it's if you were thrust into the situation of having to respond as a woman, right? To to see the world that way and right. see yourself that way, right? And uh, and I think that you know, in in it was very ahead of its time in terms of just like not 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 making a a joke really about about um, about gender or that or that sort of. I mean, certainly there's a lot of sort of there's a lot of jokes at the expense of the uh, of the character and the unattractiveness of the character or whatever. But there's so much heart um, underneath it because I think uh, you know it comes from a real, real, um, real place in Dustin Hoffman, sort of feeling growing up and feeling like an outsider and feeling unattractive and and uh, and how you know, like I said, how it would be fifty times worse had he been. Had he been born a woman yeah. with the sim- with the same level of attractiveness, but but a woman, yeah. Um, and the other the other part of that too that feeds in that the part that makes it okay to laugh mm-hmm. is that all the jokes are ultimately at the, exp- at the expense of Michael Dorsey's ego, mm-hmm. because as he says in the beginning, this would be the greatest acting challenge ever, right? Uh, and he believes it, and he believes he is a great woman mm-hmm. as Dorothy, and you know, to the point where he's disassociating himself and like, I think Dorothy deserves this. I don't know about this. Do you think Dorothy would wear mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. these earrings for Dorothy? Are they too flashy? Where he's he's lost the... He's so far into the role-playing that he's lost perspective on how horrible this is, what kind of a betrayal it is to right. everyone he's working with, right. and to women, and to the, to the concept of acting. Yeah. Uh, be, and be, with that gimmick, we're allowed to enjoy every little bit of humiliation that comes his way because right. he's reacting from it from a place of no no I'm doing this perfectly well I'm doing well and this from really the very well. and from the very beginning he's sort of I, I think that the reason that the character is is um, liberating to the audience and to the other women on the show is because he's bringing an inherently male sense of entitlement yeah to uh, to this this woman who he's who he's portraying in in a way that like you know women sort of the audience and the women on the show have never seen before. Yeah, I mean, there's talk about how you're re- she's not masculine; she's just angry. Uh, <laughs> right, 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 right. The, 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 Power his, making his, a woman yeah, masculine. Yeah, his de- yeah. and his deflection of that as a man playing a woman is is kind of incredible. Just the way that these. I mean, I'm sure that Elaine May, having directed movies, has had already had these conversations with people, and mm-hmm. you know, like the. Um, 
I wish I could remember who it was, but you hear it every time. Uh, I think Ava DuVernay was talking about it most recently. Is like when a woman demands that you follow her point of view artistically, she's a bitch. Mm-hmm. If it's a man, he's just a visionary. Mm, right. Not just a visionary, but it's okay. Like you can't mm. be the idea that you can make a film and be demanding or make give a performance and be focused and refuse to take notes and push forward is a distinctly male concept, mm-hmm. even now. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, it's still and we kind sort of, of I, I feel like men sort of take that for granted. We sort of like sure. it's like our birthright. And yeah, and well, it's uh, the whole it's the whole men's rights thing, right? Like nobody yeah. would ever like. What do you mean? Nobody's ever told me I'm an asshole. <laughs> right, right, I'm right. Just, I get what I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's that's, that's all it is. Yeah, what are men's rights? Yeah. Rights. Um, <laughs> but did you see that episode of Master of None? The uh, I've seen the first few. Oh, okay. Because there's an episode. I think it might be like eight episodes in or something, um, where the opening sequence is um, Aziz. Um, um, and his buddy at a bar, and um, a woman, a young woman played by um, Condola Rashad, you know, Felicia Rashad's oh, daughter. Yeah. So she, um, they're at the same bar together, and then it follows both of them home, their walk home from a bar at night, and how men just sort of take for granted the fact that they can just, like, uh, you know, at you know one in the morning in New York or whatever, you can just walk home and not be scared for your life or that someone is following you or is going to chase you into your building and men have no idea they don't think about that they sort of take it for granted but um the sort of shit that women have to have to put up with it's a very uh it's a very funny very smart um episode of that show i think but i'm really glad somebody's doing that yeah i like Um, what i've seen i just uh it, it dropped right around the same time that screenings really picked up. Oh, right, right. I'm still sort of... You should put, yeah, you should put, pick it back up because oh, really, there's some really good stuff in there. Um, but it, it's... Um, you Mentioning Ava DuVernay, it made me think of that... Um, did you read that article in the New York Times Magazine about this, the, the, the lack of opportunity for female filmmakers? Yeah, yeah. And one of my favorite quotes in that um, article was Meryl Streep saying how um you know because it's it's you know older white men who run the studios and 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 that sort of has a trickle down effect sure you know they want to hire you know men who who remind them of themselves or who you know groomed in their image or whatever and she was saying that uh men are never boys are never encouraged to imagine what it would be like to be female and that was a quote that I really thought was thinking about a lot when I was watching this movie and how, you know, in 1982, coming off of Kramer versus winning the best actor for Kramer versus Kramer. And, and literally, you know, they developed this script for like three years and Dustin Hoffman could have done any movie he wanted to. But he was so he was so intrigued and so interested in in exploring his femininity that this is the project that he that he chose to make, which is sort of, I feel like it's unheard of now, and it even then I feel like it's sort of um, uh, amazing. I mean, I think the word, you know, the word brave gets sort of thrown a- around a lot, um, but to me that's a, that's a, that's a brave sort of endeavor at the, at the peak of your career to sort of want to make want to make a movie like that I think you know because yeah. I think it's such a such a rare thing and well, that's why I think the movie I don't take it for granted now when I watch it you know what I mean because I think that it's uh, 
I really admire him for for that. Yeah, I can't think of another actor who's sort of gone there in that way, mm. at least not with that level of commitment. I mean, I, I think about maybe Ryan Gosling in The Notebook making choices that aren't macho choices mm-hmm. for that character, mm-hmm. but still with the big muscles and the kissing in the rain and all yeah. that. Like, that's as close as I can come, yeah. and, and it's nothing like what mm-hmm. Hoffman does. And, no. of course, it's in an era where we're already starting to accept more sensitive and thoughtful. I mean, you know, you can't really... You can't, part of, the, part of the, the brilliance of Tootsie is that you can't picture Redford no. Like you can picture Redford in The Graduate. That was Nichols. That yeah. was one of the original concepts. But you can't picture anybody else no. doing this this way. It's just such ownership of that role and that and that 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 tightrope again of being mm-hmm. able to make fun of himself as a serious actor. Mm-hmm. You know the whole the, this is after Marathon Man, after the Why don't you just try mm-hmm. acting stories? You know like about how he was. Now we have Leo DiCaprio eating raw animal liver, shooting a scene in The Revenant to yeah. chase some sort of truth, which is that I have le- I have less than no interest in seeing that. <laughs> like that to, that to me does not that to me does not resonate in any way. But the idea that sort of you know. Um, Dustin Hoffman would want to go to these places and explore these things that that men are so um, harshly judged for, and men rarely admit that they that they that they do or that they think about what it what it would be like to be a woman or what or or put themselves in a woman's shoes. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's considered um, it's considered weak or it's considered you know. Uh, um. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, vulnerable is still seen as weakness. Yeah, right? totally. Vulner- emotional openness and honesty are still bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you know, like Gosling's character in The Big Short perfectly embodies that sort of mm-hmm. alpha male bullshit thing. That yeah. He does so beautifully, but it's a comedy, so it's allowed. Yeah. Right. Uh, if you met that guy, you'd walk very quickly to the other side of the bar. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, Michael Dorsey is initially like a self-serious, entitled. Mm-hmm at least he thinks he's a coxman you know like he's right, right, right. everybody and he's just trying to be he's the, he's at 38 he's the voice of wisdom and yeah. the best person for the for the job of acting coach and all that but he's also an idiot who has no idea what he's getting sure. into which is why it can be comic instead of dramatic and it's so important that he be it's actually important to the story that he be i mean for comedic effect but also that he be that self-serious and that he be that sort of unapologetic because you know when um when you know Sidney Pollock's character or when Bill Murray's character is cracking jokes about um, his appearance or or you know why are you really doing this or you need therapy or yeah. or you're not doing this just to like you know put on little frilly dresses and stuff um, he doesn't ever apologize like he doesn't ever um, yeah he never laughs it off no never laughs it off he takes it really seriously and uh, and I think that's partly why you know he's able to become uh a better man in the end right because he takes being a woman to heart yeah you know and and what women go through to heart you know um as painful as that might be yeah uh, for the character and as funny as it is for the audience we get to yeah we get to watch the it's the weirdest hero's journey because he does commit to it fully and totally suffers and endures and does everything like I'm thinking of Dan Harmon's story circle with the meeting with the goddess he's got several goddesses in this case but Mm -hmm. yeah it comes out he does come out the other side a better person and and someone who 
you know, this is my thing about uh, love stories and romantic comedies. You, you want the characters to deserve each other. Mm-hmm. You don't want them to just be perfect for each other. You mm-hmm. need to see them fight through this and earn their romance, mm-hmm. earn the love that comes at the end. And this really does do that. You know what else is awesome? The way that the movie doesn't ever shame Jessica Lange's character for her choices. The mm-hmm. fact that she's sort of... The fact that she's, you know, a single mother, she's never married, and she says, again, because in the guise of, you know, just hanging out with another girlfriend, although I don't think that she would be apologetic about her decisions to anybody, which is cool. She's very, she's very cool. Like, she's a cool character. She's sort of... Yeah, um, single mom who drinks. Yeah, exactly. And has got a really, like, a good, like, high-paying job. She's on a cheesy soap, but she doesn't apologize for it. Yeah. Um, you know, she's making good money. Yeah, she's, she's great with the fans as opposed to some of the other actors. Totally. Who, you can totally. Gina Davis saying, is oh, a little you know, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't write this shit. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And drinks. Yep. And, you know, when Dustin Hoffman's character, when it's sort of like brought up in, you know, when it's sort of, when he brings it up and she says, you know, you don't, I, I don't, you don't have to worry about it. And then they sort of drop it and she keeps drinking throughout the movie. She doesn't stop. She doesn't have some sort of like, you know, when they meet up on the, on the sidewalk at the end of the movie, there's no, you know, Dustin Hoffman is the one who has to, who has to do the work and has to make the apology. And there, she doesn't have any sort of, well, I quit drinking, I've been yeah. in rehab or, you know yeah. what I mean? Because it would have been so easy for you her, her character. coming out of an AA meeting or something. Totally. Just do it without any dialogue at all. Totally. Yeah. But they don't, they don't do that to her. And even I sort of, I noticed it the last time I watched it because, you know, the, the, the music... The, the closing credit music c- comes in as they're sort of walking away so you can't really hear what their conversation is beyond her asking to if she can borrow the, the dress right, the yeah. yellow dress or whatever and he says oh no you'll ruin it and that's sort of the last thing you can like really hear and then I was sort of like I turn the volume up to hear what they're saying as they're walking away and she says no I won't and he says yeah you'll spill wine all over it and she says no I won't and so they're laughing about it right. and whatever and so she doesn't have to be it remains sort of like part of her character that she enjoys a couple glasses of wine at the end of the day and yeah. you know she works hard and you know she doesn't have to go through some sort of like uh, um, repentant yeah she's never she doesn't have to be redeemed transfer exactly exactly because she's cool to begin with yeah you know I mean she does get rid of the, the one thing that she does do is sort of um, kick Daphne Coleman, Coleman to yeah. the curb and, and, and Dustin Hoffman does you know, or Dorothy does obviously help her do that, but that you know, beyond that, she's she's pretty yeah. she's pretty cool. She's yeah. pretty together. She gets to own her own choices, and she gets to be the the romantic lead in a movie that doesn't even know it needs one, like, right? Until she's intru- until that and the straight man too happens. opposite, That's true. you know, which is like which is important. Yeah, no and wonder she won the. I mean, I'm still surprised it's the only Oscar that the film won. But me too. I thought so that great. I thought that Dustin Hoffman had won. I mean, to me, it is. It's maybe my favorite. One of my favorite performances in a movie ever. I think probably my favorite male performance of all time. Yeah, and it is interesting that the only... The least comedic performance is the one that won the Oscar. Like, she beat Terry Garr, which sort of kills me a little bit because Terry Garr is so genius in the movie, but in a different way. And uh, and Dustin Hoffman, actually, he, he said in an interview that when he 
he knew he wasn't going to win, though, because they were a comedy, and comedies are considered right. sort of second yeah. class. And they were up against Gandhi. Like, exactly, yeah, they were up against Gandhi, which I've, I've never seen, to be fair. It's it's a big... Stu- like, we were talking about 70mm Roadshow epics. Uh-huh. That was one of the big ones oh. from the, 80s, the early 80s. It was you know, the, the wall of stars underneath the big picture of, of mm. Sir Richard Attenborough presenting. Uh, and it is the kind of prestige movie that, of course, it was going to win. Right. Uh, it just... It was made to win. And he said that he walked in and he tapped Paul Newman on the shoulder and sort of startled him because he was nominated for The Verdict, yeah, I think, yeah. which I've also never seen The Verdict. Oh, and he Verdict's was like, great. I should wa- I should watch it. But he, I guess he said to Paul Newman, he was like, you know we're not going to win, right? Because, I, but The Verdict does not, is The Verdict, does that have a comedic element to it? Not really, no. I mean, oh. he's, he's, I mean, it's 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 a mammoth script, so it's snappy, but it's, oh. not, it's not a straight up comedy. Maybe he just meant because, like, nobody stood a chance yeah, next to Yeah, I think so. And, and Kingsley. Newman, oh, Newman's fantastic in The Verdict. It's a really great performance. Mm. Uh, it is funny when you think like about those performances like how did that not win and then you go back and you're like oh okay yeah you're like you look at the other nominees and you're like okay well, that was like 82 was a good year 83 yeah. was a good year it was a strong year yeah so the the it's good that we've moved into the acting aspect of it because the, the mm. closer on, on the show is always the same which is you know like, is there anything that you've taken or stolen or borrowed or used either as a writer as an actor or director is there anything from Tootsie that's shown up in your own work that you, you feel was conscious well, hmm. It's a good question. Yeah. We end on introspection. Right, right. I think I think now that I'm I think now that I'm writing and I'm writing in the voice of, you know, I'm writing female characters because honestly, I th- when I was growing up like the, you know, my favorite films were predominantly, you know, female let and there were so many good ones in the 80s like you know from nine to five to broadcast news to working girl to all these movies and tootsie is sort of the only one actually that of of my my favorite films of that era that has a male lead i think okay and yet it's a male lead playing a woman and i think that that um i think now it's sort of risen to the top of my favorites because it is because i i do relate to it that much more It, it being about um, a man who's getting in touch with his feminine side and and um you know um and so yeah so sort of you know co-writing with lauren and sort of create uh you know creating characters for her and writing in her, her voice um you know i've always had very strong female friendships and very strong female artistic collaborators and um and um I think Dustin Hoffman's just sort of like allowance of that and his 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 real interest and commitment in exploring that side of himself is something that um you know as 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 a writer I'm you know creating f- you know female roles f- that I want to see on screen right. you know and um in order to do that I have to I have to sort of be, I I guess be in touch with the Shirley inside me you know what I mean and uh and not feel ashamed of it or not, not apologize for it. And so, um, I think, I don't know that, I don't know that, you know, Tootsie, when I, like I said, when I first saw it, it definitely didn't have that sort of effect on me. But as I've rewatched it over the years, as I've been sort of writing and developing projects with, you know, female characters in them, I think it's really, um, inspired me in that way. So it's a touchstone on a number of different levels. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's now, um, now it's a movie that I think I'll always sort of go back to. 
um, for, uh, you know, as an actor, because all the performances are so brilliant, and as, as a director, because it's so skillfully uh, made, and as a writer, because it's so well-structured, and the dialogue is so fantastic. Um, so it kind of sort of, all the things that I'm sort of do and want to continue doing, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of a gold standard for all of those things. My thanks to Ben Lewis, whose short film Zero Recognition is available on Vimeo and is well worth 10 minutes of your time. Keep an eye out for his next short, which he mentioned on the episode. We'll let you know when it's coming. And if you're a recent follower of this podcast, maybe go back and listen to Lauren Collins' episode on Obvious Child, you know, for context. You can find Ben on Twitter at Ben Lewis here, all one word. It looks like Ben Lewisher, which is weird. And you can find Tootsie on Blu-ray and DVD in an excellent special edition from the Criterion Collection. You can also find it for sale and rental on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, or on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, um, try to do it in an approximation of Dorothy Michael's voice. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.